Good afternoon, and welcome to Ask the Expert, presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD. My name is Karen Sampson-Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, What Else Can I Do? Complementary Approaches to ADHD Treatment. Today, we are hosting Dr. Stephanie Sarkis. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Expert webcast series, which gives our community access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals in the many fields of ADHD research and experience. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. If you'd like to talk with a health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. at 1-800-233-4050 Eastern Time. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis. Dr. Sarkis is an adjunct assistant professor at Florida Atlantic University and is a sub-investigator at Clinical Research Studies at the Schmidt College of Medicine. Dr. Sarkis maintains a private counseling practice in Boca Raton in Tampa, Florida. She lectures and presents her research internationally and has been published in several journals and magazines. Dr. Sarkis is the founder of the Moulton Farnsworth Scholarship for College Students with ADHD and has written five books. The most recent is National Re Natural Relief for Adult ADHD, Complementary Strategies for Increasing Focus, Attention, and Motivation with or Without Medication. Once more, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Sarkis as our guest this afternoon. Dr. Sarkis, if you'd like to begin. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me again on the Ask the Expert series. Uh, here's a little bit about me. Uh, I know Karen just told you already uh, about my background, uh, PhD from the University of Florida, so I give a little shout-out to the Gators uh, at the end of the presentation. Uh, and I also blog for Huffington Post and Psychology Today where I talk about uh, ADHD, autism spectrum issues, and other psych stuff. Uh, my website, stephaniesarkis.com, I've got a resource page on there where you can look at uh, podcasts, uh, handouts. I have a Section 504 handout where I've checked off the accommodations I recommend for kids with ADHD elementary through high school. Uh, so you might want to check that out. So first we're going to talk about the most effective non-medication treatments for ADHD. So these are the non-medication treatments that have the most data and the most research behind them. Because if I'm going to uh, tell you about a treatment, I want to make sure that it's got a lot of meat behind it meaning that there have been several studies, well-run studies, studies that show uh, efficacy and safety of the treatment. Uh, so we're going to go through all of those. Uh, that includes cognitive behavioral therapy, and we'll get a little bit more into what that is. Accommodations in school and at work have been found to be quite effective in research. Exercise, one of the most effective non-medication treatments, and we'll talk about why. Mindfulness meditation, this has been picking up a lot of speed, has become uh, quite popular in treating ADHD, depression, anxiety. This is a kind of an ADHD-friendly form of meditation where you're staying in the here and now, and it has shown in studies to greatly reduce ADHD symptoms. Adequate sleep. Uh, about 50% of people with ADHD do have sleep difficulties, and sleep deprivation can cause even further issues with focus and attention. So we're going to talk a little bit about good sleep habits, good sleep hygiene, and how to get things treated if you might have a sleep issue. Also, omega-369, uh, commonly known as fish oil or flaxseed supplement uh, that has also been found in studies to be effective with ADHD. And with that, you definitely want to check with your prescriber first because there are side effects to that, and we'll go over that. Healthy diet, not just for people with ADHD, but everyone probably would do better brain-wise if they ate a healthy diet. 
Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about food additives and food dyes, that those are actually causing any issues with ADHD. So first, keep in mind that ADHD is treatable, but there is no cure. So if you see a treatment that says, hey, we fix ADHD, we cure it, run the other way like Gumby with your arms flailing, going, no, because you want to stay away from anything that says it's a cure. That's a sign that it's not a reputable treatment. Also, beware of any contracts. If uh, someone says to you, hey, I need you to sign this in order to do the treatment, uh, it locks you into a certain amount of, of uh, sessions or a certain dollar amount, you really want to first avoid those. And if you're considering it, at least take the contract home for 24 hours, have a legal representative, attorney look over it for you. Contracts are all about detail and paying attention to details impaired in ADHD. So, again, beware of contracts. Now, consent forms for things like counseling, that's different. A contract locks you in to something. A consent form tells you that your treatment's voluntary. It's a big difference there. And also, we want to keep in mind the goal of treatment is not to get rid of your ADHD, but to decrease the intensity and frequency of your symptoms and, therefore, improve the quality of life. So instead of maybe not completing five projects at work, maybe you're just not completing one. Instead of losing your keys every day, now you're only losing them once every couple of weeks. So, again, we're aiming for a reduction of symptoms. Because everybody loses their keys and maybe doesn't complete a work project once in a while. So you're trying to get your symptoms again back to what uh, people kind of without ADHD experience. Uh, also, do your research and ask questions. And it's really important for you to ask questions and advocate for yourself or your child. Uh, if you're feeling uncomfortable asking questions, maybe do a role play with a friend or family member first uh, about the questions you're going to ask. Uh, do a lot of online research. Google and Google Scholar is great for that. So if you go to scholar.google.com, type in ADHD, and then the treatment you're looking at, you should see all the research articles pop up. They don't give you the full article, but you can at least read the summary. Uh, and also, every treatment's got side effects. Even today, listening to the webinar, a side effect of that is that you're not outside somewhere, right? So everything's got a side effect. So if you see any treatments that don't have side effects, again, that's a red flag. Reputable treatments will tell you the side effects. And also, I tell people, too, you, you want a treatment explained to you like you're five, right? So if people are using jargon that they're maybe not explaining to you or uh, – it just doesn't sound right to you, listen to that intuition. Listen to those red flags that are popping up. And again, this might not be the best treatment for you. So again, now we're going to get into the treatments that do have research uh, backing them up. First, cognitive behavioral therapy. This is a type of therapy where you talk about automatic thoughts, thought stopping, thinking distortions. And what I mean by that is, if you're an adult with ADHD and you're given a new project at work, sometimes the, the first thing people say to themselves is, I'm never going to get this done, I'm going to get fired, this is too complicated for me. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, in part, you talk about putting up kind of a mental stop sign and changing those negative thoughts into a positive. I'm competent, I'm smart, and I can get this done on time. The more you do that thought stopping and replacing with positives, the more those positive thoughts automatically pop up. And research has shown that when you tell yourself negative things, you're more likely to release a stress-producing hormone called cortisol into your system. And chronic release of cortisol can cause some health, lifetime health effects. Uh, when you tell yourself positive stuff, you're more likely to increase dopamine and serotonin, and those are the things you want to boost when you have ADHD because those brain chemicals are t tend to be low. Also, thinking distortions. People with ADHD tend to do uh, all-or-nothing thinking, uh, one of those uh, types of thinking is catastrophizing. 
uh, well, I just got this new assignment at work. I'm going to lose my job tomorrow. Or uh, minimizing. Oh, I just lost my job. I'm going to totally get a million-dollar job tomorrow. Also, uh, cognitive distortions include things like overgeneralizing. My one friend can't go to the movies. That means I have no friends. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, the therapist kind of challenges you and helps you create more positive uh, phrasing and also, uh, again, identifying when you're having those cognitive distortions. And cognitive behavioral therapy has been found to be effective in both individual and group counseling. Now, the neat thing about group counseling uh, that, uh, that Mary Solato has found in studies, Dr. Solato, is that uh, group counseling, you tend to have a, this positive feeling of encouragement and hope. Uh, also, you do get that social connection. It can also be more cost-effective. Uh, and also, the more homework, I put in quotes, homework that you do in cognitive behavioral therapy, the greater reduction of ADHD symptoms you have. And you're more likely to complete more homework assignments in group therapy than individual. So also, it's really important when you are doing cognitive behavioral therapy that it's ADHD-focused, meaning that the particular issues of executive functioning, uh, time management, planning, social issues are all addressed. Uh, standard CBT may not cover those specific areas. So that's something you just want to ask your therapist about. Also, accommodations. Accommodations help people kind of get out of the starting gate at the same time as their non-ADHD peers. So when you have ADHD, it's kind of like, you know, the gun goes off and your gate is being held back and everybody else is running around the track. So uh, really important with accommodations to, again, kind of even that playing field. So first, uh, with college accommodations, I usually recommend that people seek the formal accommodations first, which means going through the Office for Student Disability Services. Uh, it used to be you had to have an evaluation done the last five years. Uh, the rules have now changed on that at the federal level. So now at this point, all you need is a letter from your treating clinician saying you have ADHD. And uh, the accommodations are usually uh, getting extended time on tests. This is usually time and a half. So if your test is supposed to be an hour long, you now get an hour and a half. Having a note taker in class, this is done anonymously, so nobody knows that the note taker is taking notes for you. Even the note taker doesn't know they're taking notes for you. Also, testing a separate quiet location. And on larger campuses, this can be a separate testing center. On smaller campuses, this may be a separate room just with a proctor in it. Uh, both of those types of situations meet what's called the spirit of the law. Uh, priority registration. This means you get first dibs on classes. You get smaller class sizes. The ideal class size is 16 students to one teacher. And the closer you can get to that, the better. Also, priority registration means that you get afternoon classes instead of morning classes. Again, we talked about how 50% of people with ADHD do have sleep issues. It can be very difficult for them to get up in the morning. So when, if they do show up to class, their brain just is not totally uh, functioning yet. So, again, priority registration, smaller class sizes, afternoon classes. Also, part-time course load count is full-time. That means if you're taking 12 credits and things are getting kind of rough for you and you need to drop down to six credits, you still have that count as full-time, which means you may still qualify for, for financial aid. You're able to stay in, uh, in the residence halls on campus and still receive the benefits of a full-time student. So, again, those are the accommodations that are recommended. Now, with work, you want to try informal accommodations first. And the reason why I say that is that formal accommodations, you need to disclose ADHD to your employer, and then you are covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
Now, of course, your employer is supposed to keep that information private, but you never know who's walking by their office. You never know who's working in HR. You cannot guarantee what's called third-party confidentiality. So I recommend that people try informal accommodations first. That includes uh, having coworkers or your boss send you instructions in the email rather than just telling you. So all you have to say is, hey, would you mind just shooting that an email to me? It creates a nice paper trail in case they come back to you and say, hey, I asked you to do B, not A. You can say, oh, no, my email says you asked me to do A. Uh, also, if you have any questions about what the instructions were, again, you don't have to go to that person. You just pop open the email and see it. Also, wearing noise-canceling earbuds or headphones while working. Uh, you can even ask your employer, uh, hey, do you mind if I wear these? Uh, and, again, you don't have to disclose ADHD. You can just say, you know, this will help me become a more productive employee, which is true. Also, if you're working on a project and there's an empty conference room, you can ask your employer, hey, do you mind if I just go in here and, and work on the project? In a perfect world, we'd all have offices with doors, but a lot of people work in cubicles. So the more you can get an office with a door, the, the better off you are. Also, having designated do not disturb times. I've had people put a do not disturb sign on their cubicle uh, to let people know, hey, you know, don't come by and interrupt me because I'm kind of in this workflow. Because, of course, when you have ADHD and somebody interrupts you, you go, you know, back to where you were, you know, two hours ago. You don't pick up right where you left off after somebody leaves. So really important that people kind of leave you alone for extended periods of time. It also helps to take a walk on your breaks. Being outside resets the ADHD brain, and we'll, we'll talk about exercise again, being effective treatment. Also, having a weekly one-on-one -on -one meeting with your employer to make sure that your work goals are, uh, are cohesive and they're being met. And again, it helps with that accountability piece to make sure that you're doing the work you need to do. And again, the informal accommodations are recommended first, but if you find that you're having kind of uphill battle with those, then you, know, you may want to consider formal accommodations. And what I would recommend is first talking to an attorney that specializes in workplace issues, labor issues, Americans with Disabilities Act, just so you know, you know what your rights are and what the potential benefits or pitfalls might be to that. Also, another combination is taking medication. And taking a stimulant medication has been found to be quite effective at helping improve your executive function skills like planning, forethought, organizing, which, again, helps your quality of life. So you want to keep in mind, too, that getting effective treatment is, uh, is very, very important. So now we'll talk a little bit about exercise. Now, exercise first was found to be quite effective at treating depression and anxiety. And with depression, anxiety, and ADHD, you have low levels of a neurotransmitter brain chemical called dopamine. And when you exercise, even for about 30 minutes, you boost those brain chemicals and you improve on an executive function test. And again, executive functions are planning, forethought, organizing, uh, mood changes. All this stuff is impacted by ADHD. So pretty interesting, you only have to exercise about 30 minutes. And I usually recommend that people exercise first thing in the morning because they get more of the benefits of that dopamine or norepinephrine boost throughout the day. So also, Activities like yoga, tai chi, martial arts have all been found to significantly decrease ADHD symptoms. These types of activities have some neat things going for them, including having some set structure. Uh, in martial arts, senseis or teachers are taught that you never criticize a person in front of the group. You reframe it as a positive and present it to the group that way. So it's more ADHD friendly. 
So again, any activity where you're moving around uh, and also having an organized class means you're more likely to show up as well. So also teaming up with an exercise partner. If you have somebody knocking your door and say, hey, let's go play tennis, you're going to go out and do it. We like being socially consistent. We like doing what we say we're going to do. The chances of you kind of uncouch potatoing yourself and going for a walk are much less than somebody knocks on the door and tells you, let's go. Also, there are social apps uh, that can award points for exercise and provide encouragement for you. A lot of these apps are free. Uh, one of them is called Fitocracy, F-I-T-O-C-R-A-C-Y. And just to disclose, I'm not getting uh, any endorsement by any of the, the things I named today. Um, Fitocracy awards you points for even doing things like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. And it's got a social component to it, so people cheer you on for earning points for different activities. So it really helps you with the accountability piece and the positive reinforcement piece, which is so important for people with ADHD. People with ADHD don't respond to consequences well, but they really respond well to positive reinforcement, people cheering you on. And again, exercising first thing in the morning, more lasting effects throughout the day. And people have asked me too, is there one type of exercise that's better than another? It's whatever you enjoy. And you may need to change things up because sometimes people with ADHD get bored. Uh, so make sure that you have a couple different exercises in your repertoire. You don't need to spend a lot of money. Walking around the block only requires you to wear tennis shoes or some other comfortable shoes, and that's all you need to get some exercise. Walk around the block first thing in the morning with your kids. Talk about you know, your day coming up. Uh, walk around the block after work or after school and, and talk about how things went. So really important to help get that open communication going as well. And also, like I mentioned, playing outside helps a lot of people. Uh, kids in studies with ADHD have been found that when they played outside uh, in, um, in an open area, they tended to have a reduction of ADHD symptoms. Uh, also, being in a green area has been found to uh, reduce symptoms more than, uh, than walking around in kind of a, a concrete downtown area. Uh, so, again, playing outside Really important that we allow kids to do that at school, that they never have recess taken away. There are two states now that it's a state law. They cannot take recess away for any reason, whether that's standardized testing, uh, school performance, uh, behavior in class. Those states are Hawaii and also uh, South Carolina. So hopefully more states will follow with that. Again, I would really fight to make sure that, that recess is not taken away. You learn a lot of your social skills in the playground, too, so really essential kids get that time. And you can have that added into the Section 504 plan. So mindfulness meditation. So first this was used for a depression, anxiety, show a lot of effectiveness. So now it's being looked at for ADHD. Mindfulness meditation is a, a particular type of meditation where you can meditate while you're doing stuff. So some other forms of meditation, usually you know, you're supposed to sit still or, or lay down. And it can be really difficult to sit still, right, or lay down. So uh, mindfulness, you're meditating while you're doing stuff, so you're more likely to move around anyway, so why not turn a meditative task? Uh, mindfulness teaches you relaxation techniques like deep breathing. Most people breathe thoracically. Thoracic breathing means you breathe with your, with your chest, not your tummy. Diaphragmatic breathing, you're breathing and puffing your tummy out while you inhale and then holding your breath and exhaling. So when you do a full breath, a diaphragmatic breath, or in some cases it's called a yogic breath in yoga, you are automatically kicking in your parasympathetic. That's the part of your autonomic nervous system that kicks in when you're relaxed. 
So it's a quick, easy way to, to stop your adrenaline from popping up when you're stressed out. Just do a deep uh, diaphragmatic breath. And this is a simple thing you can do. You can do it anywhere. You know, the ideal treatments are ones that don't cost anything. You can do them anywhere. Nobody notices you're doing them. You don't need anybody to teach you. So you can watch several videos on YouTube about how to do diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, they'll teach you in a yoga class. Again, really helpful tool. Also, mindfulness practices, they'll walk you through different uh, mental imagery or guide imagery scenes. So you maybe walk through a, a meadow or a forest or a beach scene. And again, if your brain's already prone to uh, being creative and busy, why not incorporate that into a meditative task? And when you do this kind of mental imagery, the staying in the here and now, you're much more likely to have a reduction not only in ADHD, anxiety symptoms, depression symptoms, but also you have a lower level perceived stress. You also tend to have lower high blood pressure. Uh, and people with ADHD are more prone to having high blood pressure and having heart disease than others. So really important that we keep the, that cortisol, those stress-producing hormones at bay. And also in studies, uh, mindfulness has been found to be more uh, have been found to be helpful in, in how people with ADHD perceive others. Like they found their kids to not be as stressful and they found their friends to not be um, as kind of annoying as before. So they tended to, uh, again, become more accepting of, uh, of themselves and, and too, which is important because when you have ADHD, sometimes you beat yourself up about stuff more than the average person. So how neat is that that you can do something very simple uh, that helps you become more accepting yourself? Uh, studies uh, with Lydia Zylowska, Dr. Zylowska, found that you need to do uh, mindfulness about three times a week in order to get the continuing effects from it. And we're going to talk about a quick mindfulness practice in a second. So in this study, there are eight-week programs. 78% of people in Dr. Zylowska's study uh, had completed the training. We had a reduction in ADHD symptoms. That's pretty huge. 30% clinically significant symptom improvement. That means that the, the symptoms decreased quite a bit. Uh, Dr. Zylowska has a really good book called The Mindfulness Prescription for Adult ADHD, which I recommend. She's got a CD in there where she walks you through different mindfulness techniques, a really good book. Uh, Mark Burton, B-E-R-T-I-N, has just come out with a book called Mindful Parenting for ADHD, which is excellent. Uh, mindfulness in a parent training group was found to decrease corporal punishment or spanking of kids with ADHD. Also, parents at a lower level of perceived stress. They saw themselves as being more efficacious or better parent. So, again, mindfulness even has impacts on how you are with your kids. So, again, this study is very important, showing that you know, mindfulness helps not only just your relationship with yourself, but also others, including your children. And here's some of the acronyms that's used in mindfulness. It's called STOP. Pretty easy to remember. If you're out doing something, stop for a second. Take a deep breath. Take a, a diaphragmatic breath. Breathe it with your tummy. Puff your tummy out while you're breathing. Observe. Where are you? What are you doing? How are you feeling? Focus on the breeze on your face. Focus now your, your feet feel on the ground. Where are you at? Are you doing what you should be doing? Or do you need to redirect yourself? P, proceed with relaxation, relaxation and awareness. Continue doing what you're doing if you're on the right track. If not, what could you be doing that's in your best interest? So, again, stop, take a deep breath, observe, and proceed. And this can be even taught to small children. Uh, again, the Mark Burton book, Mindful Parenting for ADHD, 
really helpful book, uh, the Zylowska book, uh, Mindfulness, uh, the Mindfulness Prescription for Adult ADHD also talks about uh, it, using this with children. Also, if you Google Burton and Zylowska, my last name Sarkis, I interviewed uh, both of them about their mindfulness studies. Really neat work. Uh, also finding some structural differences in the brain when you do mindfulness as well. So sleepish. We have all this stuff. Uh, initial insomnia, that means having a hard time getting to sleep. People with ADHD have inhibited melatonin release, which is a hormone called melatonin. And that melatonin kind of gets your brain ready for sleepy times. When you have ADHD, you don't have as much melatonin that's released, so it's harder for you to get to sleep. And we'll talk in a second about how using backlit devices like laptops, iPads, can actually inhibit your melatonin even more. Now, people ask me about melatonin supplements. Uh, the issues with supplements is that they're not regulated by the FDA, and there have been uh, different milligrams found from bottle to bottle, capsule to capsule in one bottle. Uh, it's not been found to be effective, but... The prescription-grade melatonin in one study recently it was found to be somewhat effective. So, again, prescription-grade melatonin, that's the kind you get from your physician, that has been FDA-approved. You have to be really careful with supplements because, again, they are not regulated by the FDA. Also, people with ADHD also have middle insomnia, getting up in the middle of the night, not because you have to go to the bathroom, but just you're up and you have no idea why. Terminal insomnia, waking up at way too early, 4 in the morning, uh, and you cannot get back to sleep. Snoring, that's a tip-off to sleep apnea. That's where the soft folds of your throat close in, and you're not getting to that deep REM sleep. Uh, so you don't wake up restored. You wake up feeling really wiped out. Restless leg syndrome is exactly what it sounds like. You're, you're moving your leg while you're sleeping, and you don't get into deep sleep. Movement while sleeping, 50% of people with ADHD experience that. So these are kids that in the morning, they wake up wrapped up like a mummy in the sheets, their legs hanging off the bed, constantly moving. Confusional arousals. This is where you wake up, but your brain's not awake. And what I ask people I meet with them is, what time do you wake up and what time does your brain wake up? And sometimes it's a gap of a couple hours. And that's why I mentioned, you know, taking college courses in the afternoon instead, because in the morning, even if you do show up for class, you may not be processing stuff. Also, bruxism, tooth grinding, big issue of people with ADHD. You do not stop being ADHD when you sleep. You still keep moving around. I've seen adults where their molars are totally flat from grinding their teeth. You can get TMJ or jaw issues, jaw popping. The treatment for this is getting a dental guard, which is a custom-made acrylic mouth guard. So you're chewing on that instead of uh, chewing on your enamel. Uh, it's about $200, $300 to get a dental guard. Dental insurance may not cover it, but you pay more in the long run for having reconstructive dental work done or also TMJ treatment. So really important to talk to your dentist about that. So, like I said, you got to shut off electronics an hour before bed. Any backlit device, that's laptops, iPads, phones, TVs, anything that emits light from it, shut that off. The ideal is shutting it off two hours before bed, but sometimes that's a little tricky for people, so at least work for an hour before bed to shut that off. Do a relaxing activity before bed. Read a real book or a non-backlit book. In the study of backlit devices versus non-backlit devices, like a, a Kindle um, paperwhite where it doesn't have the light, it just looks like a regular page. People that use the backlit devices had inhibited melatonin production. The people that use the non-backlit devices did not. 
So again, it's the wavelength of light that's coming out of these devices. What it does is your brain thinks that it's sunlight, and again, will inhibit melatonin production. So shut off all electronics an hour before bed. Have the same wake time and sleep time, even on weekends. That can be tricky because it might be on weekends. You want to sleep in a little bit, but if you wake up at the same time and sleep, uh, it really helps your brain kind of get used to that pattern. If you stay up really late on the weekends, your brain cannot compensate when it needs to get back to the regular sleep hours on Monday. I also have a completely dark bedroom. Now, some little guys need nightlights, and that's fine. Uh, most people with ADHD need, though, a completely dark room. You can wear a little sleep mask to make sure things are dark. Uh, also, keep the bedroom at comfortable temperature. The ideal temperature for people with ADHD is around, uh, for women, it's around uh, 70 degrees. For men, it's 68 degrees. Uh, and also, people with ADHD, has found a recent study, tend to be colder at night than other people. So you may need to keep an extra blanket on your bed. Also, use background sound. Guided imagery recordings, you can get those for free on YouTube, iTunes, from your library, or any kind of just uh, background sound that blocks out all that extraneous noise, like a branch tapping on the window, because it's much more likely to wake you up when you have ADHD. Also, if you're having snoring issues, restless leg, or if you have a family history of that, go see your doctor and talk to them about getting a sleep study. Sleep study, you go to a sleep lab, your job is to sleep there. It looks like a little hotel room. And they will tell you uh, not only you know, how your uh, breathing is going, uh, but also how much restless leg issues you're having. Uh, there's a really rare, rare, rare uh, chance of seizures at night. They'll be able to pick up on that. So really good to get uh, grips on that because untreated sleep disorders can actually uh, shorten your lifespan and create uh, more issues in the long run with health. So uh, really important that you get that treated. Now, dietary supplements. Again, like I said, as of 1994, supplements no longer are uh, kind of looked over by the FDA. And some real issues of quality control. And when I talk about supplements, I mean vitamins, minerals, herbal supplements. That means supplements made from part or all of a plant and omegas. And again, we're going to talk about omegas in a second. So when you do blood draws or take blood from people with ADHD, they tend to have a lower level of omega-3 in their blood. And low omega, guess what? It looks like ADHD. can cause you issues with your executive functions, inattention, lack of focus, mood swings, working memory difficulties. Working memory is like taking short-term memory and processing it and manipulating it. So uh, an example of working memory would be if I gave you a list of numbers and you have to read them to me backwards. So I'm taking your short-term memory and asking you to turn to something new and give it back to me. That's impaired when you have low omega-3. So when you give people omega-3, 6, and 9, it's just found to boost that low level of omegas and therefore improves ADHD symptoms. And also, as little as four weeks after taking omega-3 supplements, it was found in a brain scan that the neurons were communicating more effectively. Because when you have ADHD, your neurons just get their communications, uh, it gets a little tripped up. So again, omegas can help neurons communicate more effectively. But you have to be careful with them because they can cause uh, blood thinning and also can cause some stomach upset in high doses. So you really want to check with your prescriber before starting omegas, especially if you are taking blood thinners. You probably want to stay away from these. But again, check with your doctor. Also, if you don't get enteric-coated omegas, that means that omegas that have an extra layer of coating on them, you can get something called fish burp, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's kind of gross. So you can, again, get enteric-coated omegas. Uh, 
those can be more expensive, but again, you don't get the fish burp. There's also liquid omegas uh, that you can get. Uh, also, uh, omegas can be found in flaxseed oil. Um, there's a variety of different you know, non-fish um, products that have it. Also, quite a few vi- uh, vegetables have omegas in them. If you go to the USDA.gov website and uh, look up omegas and vegetables, you will see how many you know, micrograms of omegas are in things like broccoli and spinach. It's, it's quite a bit, pretty interesting stuff. So, again, consult your doctor before taking any supplement. Uh, there's a website called consumerlab.org. Uh, it's an independent uh, site that does do analysis of different supplements and lets you know uh, their quality. Some omegas you'll see uh, 50% active ingredient on the bottle. Some will say 80% active ingredient. So, again, you need to be a, a, a savvy consumer and, and look up you know, the quality of these products. So ADHD and diet. So people with ADHD tend to be more overweight and obese, about four times more likely in the general population. Also more likely to develop uh, type 2 diabetes. That's a diabetes that's related to uh, having high sugar content or intake. Uh, Also, when you do uh, brain scans of people eating high-fat, sugary, salty foods, you see the same brain reactions when you're abusing drugs. And also, you may find that if you have issues with depression, you may crave carbs like bread. And it turns out that craving carbs boosts your serotonin levels. So you're actually kind of self-medicating. So one of the neat things about mindfulness meditation is there's an eating mindfulness meditation practice where you take off small bites of food, chew it thoroughly, and don't do anything but sit and eat. And this is tricky for ADHD because you're eating by yourself. You want to, you know, play on your phone. You want to watch TV, read the paper. And again, in mindfulness practice, you just focus on your food. And I've noticed clients and patients that are doing that are starting to eat less but still feeling satiated or full. So just a little something to look into. It's an eating mindfulness practice. So also, food additives and food coloring has been found to be related to increased hyperactivity, especially in at least two studies. Uh, and decreasing eliminating food dyes and additives not just helpful to everyone, uh, or not just helpful to people with ADHD, but everyone would probably benefits for that. Our food dyes tend to be man-made artificial food dyes uh, that is changing in some products. In the European Union, their food dyes tend to be vegetable-based. Uh, Lucky Charms, General Mills recently announced that uh, Lucky Charms is not going to be having uh, vegetable-based dyes instead of artificial dyes. And they said, you know, the, the look may be a little different, but it's going to taste the same. Uh, Kraft has agreed to remove uh, the man-made dyes, replace them with vegetable-based dyes and two forms of macaroni and cheese. So we are getting to that point. Uh, M&Ms in Europe are made with uh, vegetable-based dyes. So there's some pressure now on Mars that makes M&Ms to switch those food dyes out to vegetables. Now, vegetable dyes are more expensive, uh, So, but the thing is that these are getting changed out now, which is really important, so we're kind of heading on the right track. Also, if you drink sodas, you will ingest something called sodium benzoate. It's a preservative. We like having the shelf life of our foods last, right? If you're going to go to the store and put them on the shelf, you don't want it to spoil within like a couple days, right? You want it to last for a while. So a lot of other foods that have shelf life have this preservative in them. Now, there's a study of ADHD college students. And they found that the higher the amount of sodium benzoate they were ingesting in sodas, the higher score they had on ADHD rating scales. Now, here's the big question. Is sodium benzoate 
kind of triggering ADHD symptoms or people with ADHD using these kind of drinks to help self-medicate. And we'll talk about caffeine in a second. But in a perfect world, we would not drink sodas at all. Um, if you're going to drink sodas, you know, at least do them with, with no sugar in it. Uh, so, again, we really need to be careful about what we're ingesting. Now, here's the issue with caffeine. I've had people ask me, well, can I treat my ADHD with caffeine? The thing about caffeine only helps you focus for about 30 minutes. And you get some pretty nasty side effects if you ingest too much coffee, like insomnia, irritability, stomach upset, rapid heartbeat, even muscle tremors. And going through caffeine withdrawal isn't pretty either. I've been through about five hurricanes at this point. I'm more afraid of the people not having their coffee maker working because their power's out rather than the hurricane, right? So I have a hurricane preparedness kit, and I have instant coffee to dispense in the neighborhood, right? Because you know when you stop drinking coffee, you get a little wacky. You get mood swings, headaches, to the point where they're migraines. You snap at people. So really important that we look at what effect caffeine is having on our body and the withdrawal from that. And, again, the fact that it only helps you focus for 30 minutes, the benefits do not outweigh the side effects to it. So also you have to be really careful when you're taking stimulant medication about your caffeine, caffeine intake. You know, talk to your doctor about that. Um, you can also talk to your doctor about if you are drinking quite a bit of coffee, you know, how to step down from that so you have less side effects to withdrawal. So, again, you have to be really careful with caffeine, uh, especially uh, with kids. I've seen parents bring in kids where they're drinking uh, or they're giving their kid a diet Mountain Dew in the morning during lunch and then after school do homework. And, again, not the best way to go, right? So uh, you really need to talk to your doctor about that. So there are alternative or non-medication treatments available for ADHD. Like we talked about cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness practice, exercise in all its different forms. Playing outside is very effective. You know, also, uh, eating as healthy as possible. Also, uh, looking at you know, omegas possibly and talk to your doctor about that. Accommodations, both in the workplace and at school, are effective. And when you're looking at studies, so if you go to googlescholar.com, you want to really look at, you know, how is the study run? How many people are in the study? Um, also, you know, what's their affiliation of the study, uh, the people that ran the study to the study treatment? Uh, so if the person owns the treatment company, that's a big red flag. Uh, also, benefits versus risk. What do you get out of this compared to what does it take away? Uh, also, what's the cost of treatment? Not only the upfront cost, but what's the cost if you sign up for this treatment again? Also, what are the long-term effects of this? And anything that says the cure, run the other way. So, again, the ideal treatments are ones that nobody has to teach you it. You can do it anywhere. Nobody knows that you're doing it, and it's, it's low cost. So I'll open the floor to questions. All right, wonderful. Well, we have a lot of questions that have come in, and we will get to as many as we can. Um, our first question is coming uh, uh, from Holly. She has a question about a new medicinal food called Viarin. She was wondering if you knew anything about it, if it, it has, uh, if it would be helpful. And many parents are asking very similar questions, wondering about um, omega-3s as a supplementary treatment, uh, complementary treatment for ADHD for their children. Is, is this something that you would suggest or research would suggest? 
What I would suggest is talking to your pediatrician about that. Uh, pediatricians in the last uh, two years have been found to be 40% more comfortable talking about supplements like omegas. So a lot of uh, pediatricians, general practitioners are getting hip to supplements or they're already hip to them. Uh, so you really want to check with your prescriber. I think um, Holly was referring to Vivarin. Um, that's an omega-3 supplement. Again, you really want to talk to your uh, physician about that. And again, that consumer lab uh, website um, does do analysis of different supplements. But again, really important that you check because of those side effects of blood thinning and also stomach upset. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we've got a question from Diana, and she was wondering if there were different non-medical treatments for the different sub-presentations, uh, different presentations of ADHD, the inattentive, the predominantly hyperactive, the combined type. Do are any of the information that you presented, do they work better for one presentation than the other? Studies almost always look at a combined ADHD, so inattentive, combined, or hyperactive, impulsive subtype. Uh, so what I tell people is whatever works best for you. Uh, it hasn't been found that, that one type of treatment works better for the inattentive type than the combined or the hyperactive impulsive. Uh, so, again, uh, the neat thing about that is, is that we're looking at all the different types of ADHD and the treatments I just talked about have found to be effective. So, again, you know, try some things out. Everybody works a little bit differently. So something that works for a friend of yours with ADHD may not work for you and vice versa. Uh, so, again, the nice thing about the treatments I mentioned today is that, that uh, they're pretty versatile like that. You can try them out and see if it's okay for you uh, with, you know, mild to, to moderate kind of risk of doing that. All right, wonderful. Uh, we've got a question now from Kim, and she has a five-year-old, and she was wondering what are the top non-medication treatments for five-year-olds for young children? For young children, definitely exercise. Uh, has been found to be quite effective and, again, really important that we're letting kids run outside and play. Uh, even in kindergarten, accommodations can be quite effective. Uh, one of the accommodations you can ask for in Section 504 plan is not having movement in the classroom counted off as a conduct mark, meaning that kids are allowed to get out of their seat, they're allowed to get out of circle time and not be penalized for that. Uh, also, uh, again, talk to your pediatrician if you're considering omegas. Uh, also, I've seen mindfulness used with uh, younger kids, teaching them how to do the deep breathing especially uh, can be really helpful for the little guys. So those are usually the top ones uh, for uh, kids younger than six. Great. Well, we've got uh, two questions now. One is from Sarah, and she was wondering if there were any essential oils that have been found to be helpful. And then additionally, we have a second, Kim, who is asking about uh, chiropractic care for ADHD. She said she's seen case studies but no research. Essential oils have not been found to be effective for ADHD in research. Also, chiropractic treatment has not been found to be effective as well. Great, great. Well, our next question is now coming from Netta, and we have so many questions coming in quickly. Uh, Netta's question was about melatonin and asking if it had any impact on puberty in boys, in middle school boys. I would refer to your uh, prescriber about that. Um, I don't know of that, but I wouldn't rule it out So, because um, I can't definitively say no. So, again, talk to your, uh, your prescriber about that. And, again, pharmaceutical-grade melatonin was the one in studies that was found to be effective. 
Great. Um, our next question now is coming from Abby, and she is going back to uh, your earlier part when you were talking about school accommodations and homework, and she was wondering if there was a um, specific study program or organizational program or skills that you would recommend for students. There are no specific skills uh, or, or program that's been uh, shown to, to be effective in research. Uh, the most effective thing is, is having that, uh, those accommodations put in place where you have a separate uh, testing facility, extra time on testing, but no set kind of program uh, that's been endorsed as being effective for ADHD. But really important, you get those accommodations put into writing. Uh, elementary through high school would be the 504 plan. College would be through the Office for Student Disability Services. Great, great. Um, our next one is coming from Sharon, and she was wondering where can she find a qualified CBT professional for her child? There's an organization for CBT. Uh, it's in my book, um, so I, I won't flip through that right now. But uh, there is a CBT organization. Also, uh, CHAD, uh, again, CHAD.org, uh, does have a resource of different uh, helping professionals, and you can call one of those therapists and ask them if they are trained in CBT. Uh, and again, there is a national uh, CBT organization. So if you Google that, it should pop up, and they give you a list of professionals in your area. And if, if they don't list somebody in your area, call somebody that's you know, near you and see who they recommend. Great. Um, and again, that information on the CHAD website, it's help4adhd.org. And if you take a look underneath our resources, you'll see a listing by state. Well, our next question is coming from Jennifer. And she's thinking back to your information on foods. And she was wondering if there's any research on gluten-free diets, if a gluten-free diet or limiting gluten is helpful for children and for adults with ADHD. Is there anything backing this up? Yes, there's a study uh, showing that people with ADHD are more likely to have a celiac disease. So there's a study looking at people with just ADHD and ADHD and celiac disease. The gluten-free diet helped the people with ADHD and celiac disease. It did not help the people with just ADHD. So celiac uh, or a gluten-free diet has only been effective uh, in people that cannot tolerate gluten. So great. Great ADHD has not been found to be effective. Okay, that's and very helpful. Also, same thing with casein-free diet has not been found to be effective as well, unless you have a sensitivity to dairy. And people with ADHD do tend to have more food allergies and food sensitivities than other people, but strictly for ADHD, they've not been found to be effective. All right. Um, well, we know that you're not a medical doctor. We do have a, a question that perhaps you can answer from your experience. We have several people who are looking for advice on how to deal with the appetite suppression that can come along with stimulant medications, especially when a medication holiday is not really an option for them or for their child. What are some uh, lifestyle techniques they can do to help with that? Well, definitely talk to your prescriber, first of all. Uh, also, studies have found that kids that, that have the appetite suppression, they usually wind up eating the recommended daily amount of calories. Uh, they just tend to eat a larger dinner. Uh, also, they tend to not have any differences in vitamin and mineral intake than other kids. I mean, they aren't missing any vitamin and minerals in kids without ADHD. Uh, but again, the biggest thing is to talk to your prescriber. Um, there are different stimulants available, different doses, so I would definitely kick that over to them to see if, if you can get help that way. 
Thank you. Uh, we do have several people who have a, a question. Again, remembering that you're not a, a medical doctor, and this is more to our audience. Um, does choosing not to employ medication cause more harm in the long run than employing the medication if a parent or an adult says, you know, this is not for me, not for our family? Is, this, is there a downside to that? Yes, there's a higher rate of substance abuse if people are not medicated for ADHD. There's a study in pediatrics, a journal of pediatrics by Willens, a 1999 study, and also studies by Biederman uh, in the 2000s, finding that if you do not take stimulant medication, you can have a six times higher rate of substance abuse. If your brain's missing brain chemicals, you're going to find a way to replace it whether you realize it or not. So we want to make sure we catch people early and you know, raise those brain chemicals in a regulated, uh, safe, efficacious way rather than having them, you know, unconsciously go out and seek those brain chemical boosts through using drugs. Uh, so also uh, unmedicated adults tend to have a poor quality of life overall. And also when kids are medicated and then they don't take medicine as adults, they still have a better quality of life than adults with ADHD that never took medicine. So it does act as a protective of, uh, barrier. So it may improve your grades. You may pick up on those unwritten social rules, and that can improve, again, your quality of life even as an adult without medicine. So, again, medicine does impact quality of life and does decrease the chance of having substance abuse. Great. Thank you. Well, we have a question now from Michelle, and she's taking us back to the questions on omega-3s. And she was wondering why DHA in the omega-3s or in the omega products are important. DHA and EPA are different types of omegas. I'll just let everybody know that. Uh, studies have found no differences in the two of them for treating ADHD. The important thing is just to get the omega. So I wouldn't worry so much about the DHA and EPA. Uh, just the omega piece is the important part. Great, thank you. Well, we have Alicia, and she has uh, come across something called L-tyrosine, I believe it is. And she was wondering if you had any information on that. Is that something that is a complementary approach? Yeah, no data supporting that as, as an effective supplement for ADHD. Also, I'll just go through some other ones. There's no data that's been found that, uh, that supports uh, St. John's work, kava kava, valerian root, red yeast rice. Uh, in placebo double-blind studies, meaning that people didn't know if they were getting the medicine or the supplement, I'm sorry, uh, supplement or placebo, no difference in ADHD symptoms, pediatric through adults. So, again, none of the herbal supplements have been found to be effective. Again, people with ADHD have the same vitamin and mineral levels as everyone else. Uh, there are two amino acids that they tend to be low in, in studies. Those are homocysteine and tryptophan. Now, tryptophan is your turkey coma enzyme. That's the one on Thanksgiving, you eat turkey and you get sleepy. Uh, and it's not recommended that people with ADHD take supplements for tires or for tryptophan or homocysteine because low tryptophan, the supplements have varied in quality, so you really don't want to mess with that. Also, homocysteine, having a low homocysteine level is actually good because that means you're at, at lower risk of having a heart attack. Uh, so again, people with ADHD don't have any kind of differing vitamin and mineral levels, just there tend to be two amino acids they may be low in, but again, supplements are not recommended. Great, great, thank you. Well, several of our audience members are asking about neurofeedback and bio-neurofeedback. Is there research supporting it? What, what has your experience shown? Neurofeedback has not been found to be effective, especially for the amount of money that you pay for it, uh, and the studies have not been really well run, so hopefully in the future there will be more data backing that up uh, to see if it is a viable treatment. Biofeedback has been helpful 
uh, for people with ADHD and lowering their stress level. Uh, basically, Burton biofeedback, you're teaching your body how to kick in your parasympathetic nervous system. So it teaches you how to lower your heart rate, your, um, your blood pressure uh, through feedback on a screen. So again, that has been found to be effective at reducing stress level, not just for people with ADHD, but people just control groups, depression, anxiety, neurofeedback, however, the effects of it have not stuck. Uh, and again, the cost of it is uh, pretty prohibitive to a lot of people. And again, the effects of it do not justify uh, any benefits that you get from it at this point. Great. Well, we have several parents who are asking if you have any suggestions on techniques or information on helping with impulse control for young kids. Impulse control for young kids. Uh, Kids uh, that have been in studies with cognitive behavioral therapy, that's been found to be helpful. But again, I go back to this medication piece, and that's been found to be the most effective treatment. Uh, also, uh, letting some stuff go. And what I mean by that is, you know, the brain with ADHD doesn't have that stop sign that pops up sometimes between thought and action, right? So you think about doing something, and most people have that split-second decision-making piece that says, well, maybe this isn't in my best interest. ADHD, you're like, that looks fun, let's do it, and then you wind up having the consequences. So part of it is letting some stuff go. Have three things that you will not negotiate on. Those are things like safety, like, you know, hold my hand, we're crossing the street, things like that. The rest of it, you know, if the room's messy, as long as there's not, like, food in the room, just shut the door, right? So some of it, you just got to cut yourself a break. And that the brain, you know, kids want to please their parent. They want to please their teacher. But the brain just is not able to, again, put up that stop sign between behavior and response. And also, really important that you use positive reinforcement. Catch your kids being good. I cannot emphasize this enough. Kids are 24 hours a day just like us. So the more you emphasize the positive behavior, the more that's going to happen. So, again, positive reinforcement is really the way to go and decrease the amount of consequences. All right. Thank you. Well, we've got a question from Dora to kind of follow up on what you've just said. And she was wondering if there is a method or an approach that you know of uh, that works with kids who are dealing with defiance issues. Defiance issues. One of the best books I can refer you to is Russell Barkley's uh, Your Defiant Child. Excellent, excellent book. Uh, anything by Barclay is pretty much gold standard. That's B-A-R-K-L-E-Y. He's, he's like, like the guy in ADHD. Um, so uh, his techniques on positive reinforcement and what to do when positive reinforcement doesn't work for kids that are oppositional, great book. Um, there's also one for clinicians called Defiant Teens that's good as well. So those are the two books I'd recommend. And uh, the Barclay reward system uh, is, is pretty effective. Uh, one of the most effective treatments I've seen uh, and he also has a book um, called um, uh, ADHD and the Nature of Self-Control that talks a little bit more about what ADHD is. Uh, he also had a, a new addition to his book called Taking Charge of ADHD, and that's got a really great section in there about using a positive reinforcement system. All right, wonderful. Well, one of the things that we have several people asking about is when they begin a new treatment, a new uh, approach such as you've been describing, how long should they expect it to take before they start seeing a reduction in symptoms or an improvement in behavior? That really depends on the treatment. And one of the things I recommend is that people keep a little kind of log. Um, what did they notice during the day? Did they have uh, you know, less uh, snapping at people? Did they uh, 
tend to think about things before they did it, write it down. Because when you go to see your doctor, it's really hard to remember all that stuff. So, and when you start keeping a log, you know, type it into your phone, record it into your phone, you start seeing a pattern of whether things are improving or not. And ask the person giving you the treatment, how long is this supposed to take? So, and that's a very valid question, and you should get, uh, should get a straight answer about that. And sometimes we don't know. It really depends on the person. So stimulants work within about a half hour of taking them, but, you know, they don't always work the same for everybody. Non-stimulants sometimes can take a few weeks to work, and, again, that differs for people. So, again, it's on a case-by-case basis. Just keep track of what you're experiencing. And if you ever don't feel like yourself, make sure you contact the uh, your uh, clinician right away. You know, we'd rather know now that something's not working for you rather than the next time you come in, you tell us that you've been having problems for a couple of weeks. So again, keep that open communication with your prescriber. And All right. Well, thank you. Well, our next question is coming from Melissa. And she, like many parents of young adults, their young adult is about to go to college. And she was wondering if you had any information on food planning or a place that a young adult can look to for food planning to help with symptom management. One of the great features of uh, college campuses, a lot of times they have a, a dietitian at their student health care center. So I'd recommend going and seeing a dietitian. Um, several dietitians are up to date on ADHD, uh, food-related issues. Uh, also, people with ADHD tend not to want to uh, prepare and take time to prepare their meals, especially in college. So really important that you look at uh, portable high-protein foods, uh, carrying nuts with you in your backpack, um, again, you know, carrying stuff that, that's very uh, uh, convenience-oriented and also making sure that, that kids set a timer uh, for their lunch times and dinner times because sometimes people with ADHD will hyper-focus, they'll skip meals, and that can lead to an issue with low blood sugar. And people with ADHD are more likely to have hypoglycemia, low blood sugar in the general population. So, again, I consult with a dietitian. Um, they're, they're really up to date on, on, um, on you know, what not only uh, for college students is more likely to be eaten, uh, but also the effects of different foods on ADHD. All right, wonderful. Well, we are coming to our very last question. It's coming from Sarah, and she is thinking back to what you were saying about electronics and melatonin, and she was wondering if light bulbs interfere with melatonin levels, and if they do, what can a person do about light bulbs in the evening? I haven't seen any studies supporting light bulbs impacting melatonin. Um, but always, you know, usually dimming your lights, kind of getting you ready for sleepy time can help. But I haven't seen anything specifically on light bulbs impacting melatonin. All right. Well, that was our last question. We've had a lot of questions come in. And to our audience, if we didn't get to your question today, if you if you think of a question later, please contact us at the National Resource Center. We are here Monday to Friday from 1 to, p 1 to 5 p.m., at 1-800-233-4050. Well, Dr. Sarkis, I want to thank you for your time, for your insights. We've had a large audience join us, and I think that this shows that there are a lot of people looking for these complementary approaches that they can do with, along with their ADHD treatment. So again, thank you for being with us. Uh, my website is stephaniesarkis.com. If you have any questions, or also there's resources available on there. Great. Well, to our audience, we hope you've enjoyed today's webcast. This concludes our webcast. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Sarkis, for joining us today. I'd like to thank our audience. We hope that you have a great day.